Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jonah. This is a book which is much like the game of checkers or the game of chess. At first glance, it's going to appear quite simple. It's easy to get through. You can read it very quickly with only its four short chapters. But Jonah has also plagued scholars and theologians for centuries because with that seeming simplicity on the outside, it gets a little bit more complex on the inside. And the entire book, including chapter two, which thank you for reading that, uh, is my thought roiling through me over this last little while I was, I was preparing to speak to you, my peers, my colleagues, fellow students, learners, professors along the way. Let me tell you a little bit of, about the problem that Jonah presents before I start to share a little bit more of my reflection of way, ways in which it might engage you and me as leaders within Christian ministry. The book of Jonah is probably the most familiar one uh, to most people who read through the Old Testament. It's popular. Some of us in this room are going to think of Jonah in terms of being an actual history. And you will argue and you will defend that. Some of you will believe that Jonah is a parable, a story told in Jesus-like fashion to do some good teaching. And I could spend the rest of my time speaking with you engaged in that argument. And I'm not going to. Because regardless from which point you will hail, there is a point that all of us can share which comes to us at the end of the book. People argued, why is this even in the biblical canon in the first place? Although it's the fifth in the collection of the minor prophets, it really shows up like a story. Do you know there are only five words in Hebrew in the entire book of Jonah that are prophecy? That's it. The rest is narrative. Does chapter two even belong? You see, chapter one and chapter 3 have a narrative sense of what's going on in the story. Chapter 2 and 4 are conversations with God, one in a psalm-like form, and, and the fourth is conversation that Jonah has with his God uh, when he's got some serious questions about what he's doing in life. So all of these problems and things I hope as students and learners and professors you wrestle with and argue with and, and, and start to look at this simple yet complex book. What about Jonah? Chapter 1, we have Jonah who is uh, declared as being a prophet of his time, a fourth teller, not just a foreteller. I remind myself that the word prophet is not just someone walking around with a sign saying the end is near. No, prophet, naviya, means forth teller, to sort of state what's going on in the here and the now with some suggestions God breathed of what can occur to affect positive change. Well, God wants Jonah to affect some change. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great and evil city, the ancient world's version of Nazi Germany for the Jewish people. Places that had the reputation of putting their skinned victims on the walls to show the ways in which they would treat their enemies. A nasty place. And oh, by the way, did you know it's so big and vast, this nasty place? It takes three days to walk across. Jonah, God says, I want you to go there. And tell them that I'm going to destroy them in 40 days, in 40 nights. And Jonah, being a really good prophet, turned in the opposite direction. 
heads for southern Spain, we think, Tarshish, a place that maybe has nice beaches and resorts. We don't know. But we don't know, even in chapter 1, why it is that he's leaving, but we know that he hops on board a ship and starts to sail out. And then God appoints, being God of all creation, God appoints a storm to start giving some grief to the ship and all of the sailors. And it becomes more and more violent. And the point is being made quite sternly by God that uh, this is not cool for Jonah to be heading off to the resort land of Tarshish. The sailors are inquiring, and Jonah, he says, it's me. You have to throw me overboard, because otherwise this storm is not going to stop. The pagan sailors start to reflect and teach Jonah a good Sunday school lesson of well if your God is the one who can appoint these storms, we're not going to tick off that God by throwing you overboard. And Jonah persists, and, and finally they do in reflection that this God is the God who controls all things. Jonah perhaps heard that little lesson as he was sailing through the air to hit the waters. Chapter 1 could have ended the story, but we come to chapter 2 in a second. Let's reflect for a moment what are our personal Tarshishes? When are the times or the occasions or the events in our lives going to reveal to us a clear direction that we should go this way? Maybe God's indicating that through circumstance or, or fellow students or staff members or faculty members or community members that, yeah, this direction, I really need to do it, but <laughs> it's tough. Maybe I don't like the people on the other end of that direction, end point. Maybe there's something else that is giving me a justifiable blockade to doing what I think I should be doing. So I'm going to take the easier course. Oh, that Tarshish looks awfully attractive. And surely there are godlike people there that will hunger for the things that I have to say or to pray for. Maybe there's a lovely congregation meeting in my Tarshish. It will be so much simpler. God, can't you understand? I need to go there. Could be a particular course. Something that is not receiving the type of attention that it should be receiving right now. Could be some problematic people in the congregation with whom you are worshiping or working. It could be a situation in life where you have to address something with a family member or reconcile in a relationship. Oh, the list is countless to be sure and personal for each one of us. But to be sure, we all have our temptations for Tarshish and our, our predisposition often to go in that direction. What chapter 1 can do, reaching out from the past to us and the here and the now, is let us know that that's human frailty, human nature, and God does not wipe God's hands if we head off to Tarshish. Oh, it might seem kind of dramatic what happens on the waters on board that ship, but the point is made that God ventures with us and tries to give us the indication to head back. Not blasting us with lightning bolts, causing us to get maybe a little bit wet by times, but then something happens. What happens? That great fish, not whale, by the way, that's a mistranslation used by many children's stories. Great fish comes and swallows up Jonah. And we could find ourselves then at that point, well, story's done, <laughs> and the great fish has been fed. But no, what's read for us next 
is the prayer, the psalm from chapter 2. And you would think, at least if I were in the belly of a great fish, that the first prayers of utterance would not have been this one's, but would have been similar to Psalm number 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But no. Instead, we have Jonah giving thanks. From the very depths I've been saved. When all seemed as if it was going to be disastrous and completely destructive, you saved me. Now, maybe threaded in there is a little bit of hope that that saving will continue out of the belly of the great fish, but that's not put there as a condition. What we have is a psalm of thanksgiving that is offered up by the author describing this experience of Jonah. This is a tough psalm because I guarantee each one of us that no matter what heights, What prophet-like displays we have in our lives, each one of us will reach, maybe on more than one occasion, rock bottom or seabed bottom. We will question why we were chosen in the first place. We will question all of the reasons we've made these mistakes that have been so harmful to ourselves, our ministry, and others. We will wonder if there is some other way and we will feel as if we are in the dark, dank, smelly belly of the great fish. And there too, the author would invite us to give thanks. Psalms and prayers of praise, worship songs, oh, they're pretty easy to sing when things are okay. The rain's abated until about 2 p.m. We're in a you know, relatively nice space with one another. Maybe we have some good things. Oh, that's easy. Can we sing the psalms and songs of praise and thanksgiving when we're at the bottom? The dark night of the soul. It's going to come to us. It's not an if, it's a when. Maybe it's happening now. I don't know. Our encouragement from this simple, like, complex book is an encouragement to give thanks Even when we can't think of any human earthly reason why we would be doing so, God invites us into the conversation to say, God, thank you for being in my life, even here and even now. God, who is beside me in the belly of that great fish. And then we come to that final sentence in chapter 2. God appointed the fish to vomit Jonah onto land. And it wasn't just any place that Jonah gets vomited on. It's not that far from Nineveh. So now Jonah, back into his old stride again, he's going to do what God asks, but he's going to do the very bare minimum. I picture in the story, if I could draw one at this chapter three, is Jonah putting on his very least bright prophet clothes. The ones that aren't going to get noticed. All the bright colors are muted. He's going to take the lowest of his prophet boxes upon which to stand. Maybe it's only a few inches rather than that three foot one that he has at home. And he's going to walk into the city. Well, remember that city takes three days to walk across. He's just going to walk in one day. Maybe I won't be heard. He stands at the box. God's going to destroy you. And he leaves, thinking, okay, I've done my job, God. uh, I got it finished. Uh, To his chagrin and surprise, though, even those small amount of words in his 
dullest prophet clothes on the shortest of his podia, God works wonders in the hearts of the people. The king gets word that God is going to destroy the people. There's not even hope in that message. God is going to destroy you. Amen. Hallelujah. But the king starts to think and he starts to communicate to the people around him and he says, all right, God's going to destroy us, but, but, but we know that this God of whom Jonah spoke might possibly relent the destructive hand if we repent, if we confess the sin and we turn in the other direction, turning away from our Tarshish towards something more positive not being the violent, evil people that we've got that reputation for being. And so he declares a time of repentance. And not just for the human beings, but for every breathing, living creature in Nineveh, cattle, sheep, dogs, and cats, whoever you can get a sackcloth and ashes on, it's total and complete repentance, turning from one thing towards the other. And lo and behold... God doesn't destroy them. This, of course, makes Jonah completely happy, yes? No. Sometimes in our ministry lives, either as members of congregation, or leading in a congregation, or teaching in a class, or learning in a class, we're not going to feel completely up to give our 110%, are we? I've had a really rough weekend, and now I have to teach on Tuesday morning. Or I've had a really engaging weekend as a student minister and now I've got to take it well I'll just I'll do the bare minimum I'll, I'll read half that chapter and, and, or I've got to engage with with these people um, okay what do I have for sermons on file maybe I can just print off one of those and spruce up a few of the places for relevancy or something there are going to be times in our life that are low not because of where we are personally But there are going to be times in our lives when we offer to others, as Christian ministers, not the very best. Maybe we're fatigued. Maybe something's going on at home. Maybe, maybe, whatever, you fill in the blanks. And we'll step up and maybe not give it our all. And I find chapter 3 encouraging, even though Jonah's kind of ticked off because of the results. Because when we don't give our all, we find someone who's there giving us a boost as well. Some of the very best sermons I've ever preached in my life, in my own mind, have flopped. The message has gone out about two feet from the pulpit and go, and resonated with very few. Other times in my life, when I have prepared a sermon, and I think, oh, I just wasn't, I wasn't engaged with this today, or or I've been having to present something in class, oh, I just, uh, I don't know what, I get up there, And suddenly somebody communicates with me afterwards. You know that point that you said? I needed that point today. You know that thing that you mentioned to me in class? That caused things to link for me and to make sense, finally. I smiled. You're welcome. (laughs) I had not intended any of it. It was something that I thought was an afterthought. And I'm reminded in a supernatural way, in the very best senses of what that word means, of God's partnership with me, as much as God's partnership is with you. Does that give us an excuse not to prepare? Absolutely not. 
I do not think that the Holy Spirit engages us when we are about to preach or do something else the three minutes before something begins. Sermon preparation, for example, that starts probably about a half an hour after the last worship service has ended and you know what's coming up for the following week. Class preparation for essays, presentations, whatever they may be, that's not something that God's Holy Spirit is going to jump down on your shoulders at 3 a.m. before the test and say, oh, that's all right, you just go, you show up, I'll write it for you. That's not what chapter 3 is saying, but what chapter 3 is saying is that in partnership with God, there is much more possible and much greater potential for good things to happen, for good paths to be found. Now, a little bit contradictory to what I've just said, we do have Jonah's dilemma. It hasn't stopped at chapter 3. He doesn't go out of Nineveh saying, Hey, God, you saved the people. No. We find out in chapter 4 exactly why Tarshish was so attractive. Jonah, a very human being, didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew. He knew that there was just that infinitesimal chance that if the people repented... God would forgive them. See, Jonah knew his God. Jonah knows the encompassing love and possibilities of salvation that his God represents. It's that very knowledge that is keeping him from giving those evil Ninevites a chance. Before I talk about chapter 4 a little bit, I want to read it. Because the writer says it a lot better than I could. It gives us a description of, as in chapter 2, another conversation with God. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please... Take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush. By the way, just as the Lord appointed that great fish. The Lord appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Question mark. 
I also like animals in there because like, I'm an animal lover, so hey God, that's really, really resonating with me. What we have here in this conversation is a personal ministry agenda has not been achieved by Jonah. He preached the destruction and it didn't happen. God did something else. And then God challenged Jonah to move beyond his own agenda. When I served on a licensing committee in the Halifax Association, I got a chance to meet with a whole lot of people that were seeking to be licensed within the Baptist circumstance. And on many occasions, we would have the opportunity to hear the reasons why people were continuing to follow this this particular path of ministry. Once in a while, we would hear reasons given that would allow us, the committee, to question and explore further. My father, who's not going to live much longer, always wanted me to become a minister. Well, I've had all of these personal problems in my life, and I haven't been able to solve them on my own, but I think maybe if I start helping other people, those problems in my own life will will become better and be solved. We didn't say a summary no to the people with these reasons and others that I could name. But it does invite questions for each one of us as to what is our agenda? What is our plan? Is our plan our own plan? Is it one that we kind of got hinting ideas from God at first, but we've molded and reshaped it into our own image, our own graven image? fourth chapter is a reminder for Jonah of his place in the scheme of things, an important place, a treasured and precious child in the arms of God, but Jonah is not God. Jonah does not grow that bush. Jonah, as a child of God, is one who can care for the bush, but a reality check is given to Jonah by God. You're in partnership with me to be sure. But I want to teach you a few things about love. A few things about compassion that are outside of your own personal agenda. Perhaps in our own lives, we're given the daily opportunity on a personal level in prayer with friends and colleagues to to look at the reasons why you're at the Divinity College, why you're on this campus, why you're engaged in ministry in a particular church, why you're trying to grow these particular skills and talents in your ministry life. And not to say that you should stop any of them, but it's very, very healthy to see in the plan God's handiwork. Uh, When I was talking to someone who was a counselor a number of years ago, because I feel that if I'm going to counsel, it's a good idea to receive counseling as well. I used to think of uh, a prayer that I would say quite often as a student and student minister and minister and chaplain uh, in the morning, perhaps walking to work, God, not my will, but yours be done. And I could say that very confidently. We have the Lord's Prayer that guides us in that too. But I was also setting myself up for some Tarshish running. Because by times, saying that was really just paying lip service to God. Because I want to get this done. And it's really, I don't know if it's your will or not. Uh, Your will, not mine, be done. Grudgingly stepping into it. The counselor said to me, well, that's good to have as a foundation point, as a minister. But maybe, maybe you can also interpret it meaning, 
not my will alone, but your will combined with mine in that sense of transformation. Each one of us has particular skills and gifts in this room. Each one of us has particular warts and bumps in our lives, too. God does not summarily reject us and leave us at the bottom of the waters. God does not let us tear it off to Tarshish. God seeks to combine with where we are going, giving some counsel and redirection along the way, and causing and allowing daily transformation to occur within our lives. That is my strong belief, and that is my belief in what is going on in this fourth chapter. Because that genius writer of this simple yet complex book doesn't answer the question. The question mark is that last punctuation point that we have. Jonah is supposed to answer, we hope will answer, but the question isn't just for Jonah. On this day, in the here and the now, can we hear about the overall encompassing love of God, invitation to salvation through Jesus Christ, and the ways in which our own agendas need to be reshaped and reformed so that we better mirror the likeness of Christ on earth as a servant to all people, regardless of who we have difficulty with, regardless of where our Ninevehs are. Dare we venture forth, knowing that as that psalm in chapter 2 will show, the God of our salvation will be with us. I love leaving questions for us to ponder and mull over and talk about, maybe over a meal or in a walk back to classes, whatever the case may be. My father-in-law, I echo it today, said to me when I became a minister, Tim, don't be concerned with the unquestionable answers in life and delivering them like medicine to the people. Join with people in the unanswerable questions. And in those ways, you will find the mind and the heart of God beating next to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.